As we come to our text this morning, um, I want to draw your attention backward a little bit to verse uh, 3 in chapter 1. We see that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, reminding them that he and others, those that are with him, Timothy and Silas, are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. And he says, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of our God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations. Where we're headed this morning is we're going to talk about, I don't know if I have sent the, the right title out, but I've entitled this morning's message, uh, When He Comes in That Day. Because we're going to find that forward sentence nestled in uh, these verses here from verse 7 to 12. And that's where Paul goes throughout this book. But if you recall, when I was with you two weeks ago, we spent time introducing the book that the reason Paul wrote a second letter to the Thessalonian Christians was because a uh, false teaching, uh, perhaps even through a, a forged letter, we're not clear, had come to them suggesting to the Christians in Thessalonica that they had missed the coming of the Lord. And so Paul in the second letter is making that very clear that they have not. And he will underscore and reinforce that as he goes on through the letter. But we also took time in the first handful of verses, verses 1 through 7, to uh, take a look at some of the truths that Paul deals with when he said to them in verse 4 that he boasts of them to churches because of their patience and faith in all their persecution and tribulations that you endure. We reminded ourselves that tribulation and persecution comes along with the territory of declaring our faith in Christ. If you want, you want to do something that will just aggravate the enemy of God is go tell someone that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Step out today. You know, they used to say uh, back in the day when uh, I remember watching young people get saved, they say, well, now the first thing I want you to do is go tell someone you've got saved. And maybe as we walk with the Lord a little while, we say, well, you know, I don't really need to tell anybody. I'm just thankful that I'm going to heaven. Go out and tell someone today that you know Christ and that you are saved and that you know you're going to heaven and watch how aggravated the devil will get. Next thing you know, persecution and tribulation will be knocking on your door. But Paul talks about the fact that those things in the life of believers are actually an evidence. Notice verse 5 when he said, which is manifest evidence 
of the righteous judgment of God. Stop there. How is persecution and tribulation a manifest evidence of God being righteous? You ever thought about that? And what comes to me is clearly the fact that persecution and tribulation being aggravated against the truth of one true God, one only begotten Son of God, one way to heaven and one way only, proliferated through the saints of God into the world, we're reminded that it is indeed a fallen world. Manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. We must not forget that God is righteous and his judgment is true. And though his greatest desire was to have ongoing, unbroken fellowship with mankind, it began way back at the beginning when mankind, in his own volition, chose not to obey the will of God and the commandment of God and fell from the grace of God. If God had not been righteous or true, he would say, well, that's, you know, let's just forget about that for now. Let's go on with things. No. Immediately, sin entered the world. And through sin, death has come to all men. Death, pain, hardship, tribulation, persecution. It's a manifest evidence that God's judgment is righteous. Paul was praying for them that they would be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer. Verse 6, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay tribulation, to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Now we not uh, often think of, of God as someone that is ready to mete out uh, payment for someone troubling the saints. But it's not a foreign thing at all in Scripture, and certainly in the eye of the Orthodox Hebrew believer that now had chosen to follow Christ and the Gentile in Thessalonica. Um, Psalm 74, 22, Arise, O God, plea, plead your cause Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior. Interesting one, if you're taking notes this morning, you can look some of these passages up later. Zechariah 2.8 For thus saith the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, 
For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. No, God is very jealous about his people. Very uh, in love with humanity itself. But when it comes to his followers, those that trouble them, he has promised to repay. <clears throat> Revelation 16, 5. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, quote, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and is to be, because you have judged these things. So Paul makes those things clear as he moves forward with the Thessalonians. And then we come, of course, to uh, verse 7, where we left off last time I was with you, when he said, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And where I left off with you last time was the promise that in hardship or trial, God promises rest. He, he will give you and I rest, as he says there, to give you who are troubled rest with us. That rest is, is present, it is now, but it is also a promised rest for the future. Notice when he says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now this is where it starts to get very exciting because Paul tells them they haven't missed it. He is still yet to come and therefore he's telling every reader from that moment forward <clears throat> until the Lord does come that Christ is coming. He's going to return. He alludes to it here. And I find it extremely interesting that sometimes we just go on without an emphasis or a focus upon his return. Uh, Matthew's gospel, Jesus was speaking about ten virgins. Five were ready, five were not. And remember what he said to those that were listening to that parable of, of their lives being filled with the oil, the spirit ready. He said, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Are you and I ready this morning? Is your lamp filled? Is the oil overflowing in your heart and your life? In Mark's gospel, he reminded his followers, Mark 8, 38, for whoever is ashamed of me at my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. The promise of his return. You remember, of course, what took place in the book of Acts. Luke gave us a record that the disciples had uh, seen Jesus after he had resurrected, seen for over 40 days, 40 nights, by over 500 eyewitnesses. And lastly, he was with them and he was taken up into heaven. And Luke gives us the record in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It says that while they steadfastly looked toward heaven 
as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. And they said to the men, he said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go. Coming. And Paul wanted to make certain that these Thessalonians understood they had not missed it. That he was still yet to come. And that when he comes, what we find in these next handful of verses, that really there is a comparison. Uh, I found this interesting. It hasn't stopped me uh, before, I think. But there's a comparison of, of two individuals, two types of people, two types of societies, two, two categories. Notice, draw your attention to verse 8. When he comes, he says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he first inserts that there is, when Christ comes, there is... Um, uh, the word escapes me, but I mean contingency, a, a, a people group. There, there's an entire part of humanity. Let's put it that way. There is an entire part of humanity that, A, does not know God, and B, does not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I found that, wow, right there, there's two, two entire portions of humanity. It's the first of these two types of uh, people groups. The second is coming. He's going to talk about the second group. But notice there's a consequence. There's a consequence for this group of people that do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Again, what is the chief end of man? Roy Henson in his book, Sir, We Would See Jesus, so clearly tells us. I'd like to share it with you. What is the purpose of life? This is one of the questions to which most of us are longing to find the answer. We find ourselves driven and pulled in different directions by inner urges, longings and desires which we do not seem able to satisfy. We look enviously at others and imagine that their lives are much fuller and more satisfying than ours. We think that if we could just gain this prize or enjoy that pleasure, we would be truly satisfied. But when at last we do achieve those prizes or pleasures, we find that 
we are no happier than we were before. And the older we grow, the more frustrated we feel, and we find ourselves asking, what is the purpose of life? How can I find it? How can I be sure I've made the right choice? Roy Henson goes on to say in his book, Sir, We Would See Jesus, these are questions to which many a professing Christian yet needs to find the answer, as well as the man who has no knowledge of God. However, when we turn to the Bible, we find a clear and simple answer to this fundamental question. Deuteronomy 10.12 What does the Lord thy God require of you? But to fear the Lord and to walk in all of his ways and to love him. Micah 6.8 he has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to humble yourself and walk with your God. Mark 12, 30, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and with all your strength. He goes on to say that it appears, therefore, that the Bible, its answer to the question, what is the purpose of life, is to know and to love and to walk with God. What is the purpose of life? To know God, to love God, and to walk with God. And yet, when Christ comes, there will be an entire segment of humanity that does not know God, A, and B, does not obey the gospel, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know God this morning? Do you know him? Profoundly yesterday, someone shared, early in our time together, that this is the purpose of their life, to know God. If you know him, if ye, he is intimately a part of your daily life, how much of that knowledge of God do you have an opportunity to share with others who may not know God? Is that not why once we come to a living faith that God places others in our pathway that we might share this revelation. Is it us four and no more? Or is the greater purpose of being saved, coming to a living faith, once being awakened by the Spirit of God in the heart, to then share what it is you have come to know about this true and living God? Because the day is coming. It's nigh even at the door. Circumstances in our lifetime have never been before. This is an unprecedented time in human history for a variety of reasons. And yet there will be an entire segment that does not know God nor obeys his gospel. These, Paul says to the Thessalonians, 
will be punished with an everlasting destruction. How often do we talk about that on a given Sunday morning or a Wednesday Bible study? Do we often mention the, the eternal destruction that awaits someone who knows not God? Recently, speaking with a dear man who had some previous experience in church or church life, his resolve was that he just didn't like the hellfire and brimstone part. I remember even before I came to faith, stepping off the foothill 43 that would dump me at the end of Telegraph Ave in Berkeley. And having come from a comfortable home, the care of my mom, with a, a purchased tie-dye cut-off shirt and purchased brown bell-bottom leather pants and growing my hair long, I could get off that bus after having paid my fare and look like and act like I was a hippie that maybe I was living amongst them. And yet I was able to just step back on the bus and go back to my, the comfort of my home at any time. But it was, it was there in that, that sea of humanity, of people looking for truth and looking for reality, that often there on the steps of the, of, of the University of Berkeley, there would be this older man, sure enough, plastered on a soapbox, telling us about, if we don't believe in Christ, we're going to hell. It was hellfire and brimstone. And I have to say that I often looked at that individual as a heretic. I would listen, and, and yet, as I was listening, I didn't even know what I was hearing, but the word of God was being sown, being sown into me, so that one day in my early teens, having been given the opportunity to go to a summer camp, Hume Lake, I spent all week hearing Bible studies, hearing about the truth of God, the love of God, the Son of God, the cross of Calvary, the reality of sin, the consequence of sin, and yet the offer of salvation, so that by the time I got to Friday after that week, there at a campfire with a couple of hundred other teens, when old Mr. Ken Poor said, if you want to be sure not to burn in hell, and you want to be sure that you spend eternity with God the Father, this is your night, this is your moment. All you must do is acknowledge that Christ died for your sin, and that you desire he will forgive you. And if that's you tonight, if that's you, right where you are, simply raise up your hand. And, and I mean, I didn't plan to, but my hand went up. And now if you've raised your hand, I want you to stand up. And sure enough, there was a large group of kids that stood. And if you're standing, I want you to come down to this fire pit. And we all traveled down to this fire pit. And Ken Poor led us in a prayer of salvation. So I have to say to you this morning, 
that it was, it was the kindness of God shown to me all week long and the promise of a hellfire eternity apart from God both combined that caused me to respond. Yes, the Bible tells us it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But would we agree that it's the promise of God and of an eternity apart from him that might in fact cause us to respond to that repentance and invite him in to be our savior? Do you know God this morning? If you're watching at home, that question is for you as well. Because the day is coming. You ask, well, where is that in our text, Pastor? And I invite you to now come with me to verse 10. When he comes in that day. There it is. Paul was telling the Thessalonians, he hasn't come yet, but he's coming. Don't worry, you haven't missed it. The Holy Spirit is telling us this morning, he's coming, you haven't missed it. But, are you ready? Now it is interesting that in that first group, there are two subdivisions, if you will. First, those who do not know God. But notice, back again, in verse 8, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pondered why there would be the two. Are they the same? They cannot be. One is clearly an ignorance or an unknowing of God. There is no knowledge of God. They have not retained the knowledge of God in their heart. The second, different. There may be, in fact, a knowledge of God there may be an understanding of God, but there was a willful choice to not obey the gospel. Do you see that there? It's clear to me. And if so, I present to us, if so, then that's a different group. Still, relegated to uh, the punishment. I want you to take a moment, turn with me, keep your finger there uh, in 2 Thessalonians. Turn to the right to the book of Jude. To the right to the book of Jude. Second to last book in your New Testament. And Jude is one chapter... brother of the Lord Jesus. And Jude writes about false teachers in the last days at the time of the Lord's coming. I draw your attention to verse 14 and forward where Jude writes. 
He says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are <clears throat> grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust. And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause division, not having the spirit. Stop right there. So in this particular group of people, similar time, the time of Christ's last coming, this group of people seems to possess a knowledge of God, but they have perverted that knowledge and they are, not clear, they are clearly not obeying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> we see that there is an, a judgment uh, awaiting them as well. Uh, as he said in verse 15, to execute judgment on all, to convict all. And so there is this overwhelming truth in Scripture that as many people as you and I know, perhaps your circle of family and friends uh, continues to uh, get, get smaller or more uh, sequestered, that most of the folks you know are Christians, Bible-believing Christians, those who have embraced the faith in the true and the living God and the one and only God of, of the Bible. But are not we here to be salt and light in a dark world? And how do we retain the the ability or even the, the sense of being able to be salt and light to someone who does not know God or in their knowledge of God is not obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what Jude writes in verse 20. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up upon your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion. Making distinction. But on others save with fear. Pulling them out of the fire. Hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. 
on some. We just share our life and in hope and endeavor that that our compassion will draw them to want to know the God that we know. But on others, we're we're directed by Jude here to just call it like it is and say, hey, if, if you don't get to know God or seek to understand what Christ did in dying for you, my beloved friend, there's an eternal judgment waiting for you. Turn back and we'll close this morning in 2 Thessalonians. The second group. We have the first group of those who do not know God or obey the gospel. The second group, notice in verse 10, when he says, when he comes in that day, notice, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Because our testimony among you was believed. Those who believe. Those who do not know God or obey the gospel, first group, second group, those who believe. One event, his return. Two groups, those that don't know him or obey the gospel, those who do believe. Notice, in those who believe, notice this beautiful truth. It says that when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints. To be glorified in them. That when others look at you and I, that, oh, they might see a nice person, flawed by various characteristic defaults. But wouldn't the hope be is that they see Christ? Wouldn't that be the most glorious thing, that someone could see Christ glorified in you? In me. It's a lifelong process, my beloved. It is a lifelong process. I will say this that we who were here yesterday all could testify. To Brian's life at the end was a life in which Christ was being glorified. Why wait? Why wait until our epitaph is being written? Why wait until we're our life is being celebrated by those who are still here and we're gone. Wouldn't it be a glorious thing for Christ to be being glorified in you today? Notice this is why Paul prays. Verse 11, we read it in First Thessalon- Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Therefore, we also pray always for you 
that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the sum total of all of this. When he comes in that day, we don't know what day that is. We don't know what hour that is. It could be in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. This could be that day. When he comes in that day, there will not be, as Google says, 50 different genders. 50. When he comes in that day, there will not be three political parties, Republican, Democrat, Independent, and all the other rest. When he comes in that day, there will not be 195 countries, we're told, of which in the United Nations there are only two that are not represented. You know who they are. One of which is the Vatican, the Holy See, and the other is what is called the State of Palestine. Do you find that interesting? In that day when he comes, there will not be 223 different ethnicities, languages. In that day when he comes, there will not even be male and female. In that day, when he comes, there will be two groups. One that do not know God or obey the gospel, and the other, those who believe. The question, which group do you belong to? And if you are unsure, like that night at Hume Lake, today is your day. This moment is your moment. If you want to be sure that you're going to spend eternity with God, I would ask you, invite you to bow your head and pray with me. Invite him into your life. If you do know God this morning, perhaps you would just join me as well. Let's pray. Simple words, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. in need of a Savior. God, I believe you sent your Son to die for my sin. This day I acknowledge my need for your forgiveness. I'm not sure what my life was all about before this moment. But right now I invite you to forgive Give me, to save me, to cause me to know you, to walk with you the rest of my life. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. If you've prayed that prayer, I'd love to talk with you afterwards, but let's take a moment and close with a song of worship to the Lord.